and she agrees with you, so off we are running. Today is October the 13th, lecture discussion number 79 on the book of Joel, and I have a I have a, a letter to read. I get actual letters. I know you think I write my own letters. It's not true. I have one. The handwriting is very impressive. Uh, it is from Val Joe from Bakersfield, California. Val Joe is married to Joe, so it's Joe Val Joe from Bakersfield, but this is just from Val Joe. And she writes, uh, Dear Pastor Chronister, thank you so much for all of your teachings. There are either no words, not enough words, or way too many words to describe how much I enjoy listening to you, which is, by the way, I do almost every day. And we feel so much sympathy for her and her family. Uh, she said, you have opened God's words in such a life-altering and, dare I say, mind-blowing way. I've been listening to your Romans, the Just Shall Live by Faith series, and I'm enthralled with all the glorious stuff I have learned. Oh, my. By the way, <laughs> I got 100% on the test you gave on 8-22-2010. Yeah, congratulations, Valjo. Uh, what a testimony to your mighty teaching. I see my God in a whole new and glorious light, and thank you. Today, this is the funny part. Today, I will be listening to lecture number 27. How many lectures did I do in uh, Romans? Over 300, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, here's what she said. And I am so thrilled that I have 273 more lectures on Romans to dive into and swim around in. I'm also listening to your Genesis series and the, and the book of Joel. All at the same time here. So that sympathy that we had for Val Joe it just grew immensely. And, and anyone around her, no end in sight for me, which delights my soul to no end. I've got notebooks all over the place. And anyway, and she mentions her friend Susan. And, um, and uh, anyway, uh, I just wanted to bring that up. Because one, it's a real letter. And two, she's listening to all the lectures at the same time which puts her in a class of exactly one person that I am aware of. Maybe Susan is with her, and the two of them can hold on as they try to do something like that. Okay. We shall be continuing along in the same manner as last Sunday, which is uh, indistinguishable from the every Sunday recipe. As you know, I like to pretend that I offer diversity, something new, shiny, blingy stuff, but it never really happens. The best indication of future behaviors are past behaviors, which uh, to crystallize that, all Sundays are going to be the same Sunday forever. Uh, I have an example of this that was put in uh, to a poem or a song, actually a song. It goes something like this. This is the Cliffside uh, theme song. Nothing ever changes Everything remains the same. You are what you are till the day that we die. Okay, that's Larry Norman wrote that, and I stole it from him. That's Moses in the Wilderness, not the song, but the, the album that it is on. And Moses in the Wilderness is my favorite, and Never Borrow Money Needlessly, which is Household Finance Corporation. And that will mean nothing. It's absolute total nothingness. To everyone that's listening by internet mostly today, because we have a sunny day. It's 40 degrees, but it's sunny, so uh, you, we know what that means in October. But that uh, absolute total nothingness to everybody who heard that, that is less than 66 years old, which, as you know, is an arbitrary number. Just 
But somebody on the vast internet audience is weeping because I said, Moses in the wilderness and never borrow money needlessly. Because that was hilarious. Nobody knew that. There's no humor like old people humor. And that was old people humor. But as demonstrated every day in our colleges and universities, and this I think is an important piece of information that we all know now intuitively, humor isn't allowed anymore. The young have become humorless. Uh, They are poisoned by academia into a state of intolerance. They would never laugh at Moses in the wilderness now. They would find something wrong with it, intolerant, they they would say, because it was Christian. They would call it evil. And I think this is a permanent condition, which means this country is in dire, dire condition. Irreversible. So my Larry Norman reference zinged over their heads of all those in the Ivy League, all the graduates of 2019 for sure, and that's sad for them, but not everyone. There's one person somewhere, aged 66, an arbitrary number, who is paralyzed right now by laughter. It is not Gabe and Avery, I can tell you that, or most of you. And I need them to write now, don't I? Because uh, I need my hypothesis confirmed. And wait till they do, proving my point. Okay. We left off last week, Lecture 78, October the 7th, for those who value continuity and categorization lists. Left off with primarily the emphasis being on Genesis 2-7. Let me put these on here for you. Genesis 2-7. Genesis 3.19, what what, what else do I want? Ecclesiastes 12, particularly 12.7, and John 11.25. Those four belong together. Genesis 2.7, just a quick review. That's the description of the dust of the ground being combined with the breath of life, the spirit of life, with respect to humanity. And you see, um, you see that Genesis 7.22 is one aspect. Let me write the rest of them down for you because I get people will want to know on the internet. Genesis 7.22 is the breath of life. And it goes in two directions. The breath of the spirit of life. The breath of the spirit of life was breathed into man's body that was made from the dust. That's connected to Genesis 3.19. We'll get to that in a minute. And Ecclesiastes 12.7 and John 11.25. But I also have breath of life going in a different direction, if you will. It's going in 120. My pen's about out of ink here, isn't it? 121. 124. 128. 130, that is where, that cements, if you will, the living soul, living being description of animals that were also given the breath of life. The words are identical. The words applied to man, living being, is the exact same Hebrew word 
the words that are used in 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, they also got the breath of life. Those are identical. A man has a uniqueness to him with respect to animals, but uh, there is no soul living being difference. The, the living being description of animals is exactly the same as that which is applied to man. Both got the spirit of the breath of life. And Genesis 2-7 was the context of, um, was the context of Genesis 3-19. Genesis 2-7, God is referring to Genesis 2-7 and what he did there by breathing the breath of life into a body of dust. He revisits it in Genesis 3-19 at the trial of Adam when he says to Adam, you will return to a body of dust or your body will return to dust. So he is putting the two of them together. When God announced his sentence on Adam... In that trial of Adam, Eve, and Satan, he's the judge presiding. That's the Ancient of Days. That's Jesus Christ. That's polished brass. He defines himself or describes himself as having feet of fine, polished, burnished brass. Revelation 115, 2.18, that tells you that he is the judge because that is an attribute of judgment. Gold is deity. Silver is blood atonement. Brass is judgment. And at that trial, he looks the same as he looks in Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Revelation 1, Revelation 19. The trial declared that Adam's body would return to dust. His spirit, the breath of life, would return to God who gave it. Again, Genesis 3.19 is the reversing of Genesis 2.7. Genesis 2-7 is the underlayment of Genesis 3-19. And that's obviously something I'm attempting to bludgeon into everyone who is listening, all the into the fabric of all who have attended the last couple of Sundays, either digitally or by particle-based means, physically, if you prefer. I don't know that I can say it too many times. Genesis 2-7 and Genesis 3-19 should be placed together in your mind because of the importance of what he is doing in both places. And, that, and they both are clearly understandable. Um, when, you have, when you have the understanding of that, now you can go to uh, John 11.25 and John 8.12 and figure out what he means there. What he's really saying He's saying that he is the only one, he alone. Now, there's this aloneness with Christ, and he says it all the time, this aloneness in God. God alone stretches out the heavens. God alone does many things. He's saying that he is the only one that can reverse Genesis 3.19, which is the reversal of Genesis 2.7. So he says he can reverse the reversing at John 11:25 and he's the only one that can do it because there's only one kind of resurrection and he's the only one that can do that resurrection and he, there's only one life and it's singular and he alone is the resurrection and the life and he can reverse Genesis 3:19 because he's the one that did Genesis 2:7 and he can do Genesis 2:7 as often as he wants Because that's who he is. And he says that also. 
Now, he, he did it, obviously. Um, he has many times. How many resurrections are there? Do you know? There are five. And there's an order to them. It's therefore logical why his proclamation in Genesis 3.19 took effect. Because he said, at Genesis 3.19, because you have done this, your body will go to dust. And it happened. He wasn't guessing. His order, if you wish to think of it this way, occurred, or you want to think of it as being an enactment. The sentence was constituted. And the question becomes is, how did he know? Which is a big duh. Only the one who had the ability to combine the breath of life with the body in the first place, the body of dust, the only the one that could do that when it was done would know the consequences that would result from what, was, what happened in Genesis 3. He would know the decay over time that results in the separation. He would know the spirit and the body returned each to that from which they came. And that's what happens when you physically die. Your body goes back to where it began and your spirit goes back to who began it. So we have two beginnings. The beginnings are both occurring. And to repeat the repetition here, who could have pronounced this sentence and know that it would result? Don't take that for granted. He knew when he said this to Adam that it would happen. There was no possibility anything but this would happen. He didn't cause it to happen. He didn't impose it. What he did was give, give Adam the natural result of the behavior. The behavior was a disobedient, uh, disobedience with regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's important to recognize the knowing of the trial sentence. He knows the sentence. Who can know the meaning of death? Only him who knows and creates life. So the fact that he is the creator of life, he would know the meaning of death. Genesis 2, 7 is the beginning of life. The one who did that is the only one at the time of this trial who could know the inverse of life, the reversal of life, the certain death, the surely die of Genesis 2.17. God knows life from death, and I want you to give that some more thought. I want you to consider Genesis 3.22, the great behold, where he says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. So God knows good from evil. And I'm going to take it a little step further here. I'm going to say he knows the difference between life and death. And at the time, who else knew that? And let me put this in for the Internet audience. I've done lectures on Adam death, which is physical failure over time. I'm an example of Adam death. I'm decaying over time. There's also able death, if you wish, to make a distinction. That's physical death imposed by an outside force. So you have, uh, you have a slight distinction. By slight, I just want to point out, in both considerations, decay and failure over time had already begun in everyone. 
irrespective of the outside force interrupting the, the decay process. What I mean by that is the mortogenic factor is inherent. That is uh, Romans 5.12, as you know. It's universal, and it's in the primary position. You are already dying when you are killed. Does that make sense? I'll look around. Some of us are dying a little bit more obviously than others. But all of us have the rate of decay over time. Adam death, Romans 5.12. And that is why, and all of this is why, I brought up anesthesiology last week and consciousness. See, I want to know, and I want everyone to know, or at least everyone to think, what is exactly occurring under general anesthesia? Having gone through general anesthesia recently, that's my second time, I know what they think happened to me, and I know what I think happened to me, and they are disparate. Let me ask some questions that you will hear and see a lot. Is consciousness, memory, will, diminished, reduced, or eliminated in anesthesiology, by anesthesia? Not to be confused with Anastasia. It was part of the Romanov, uh, I believe, the Nicholas Sars daughter. Do you know how many people pretended they were Anastasia to try to get access to the Russian uh, jewels? Why do I bring this up? I don't know. And they all pretended they were Anastasia. But now we have DNA. And now we know they all lied. And here's your rule for today. People lie, just in case you thought otherwise. Anyway, is <laughs> what causes me to do this stuff? I don't know. Is consciousness, your memory, your will, is it eliminated? The anesthesiology profession will say what to you? There's some dis disruption in their consensus, but they will say that it is eliminated. Many of them will. Is that happening or is something else happening? Is this really the mystery of the mind and the brain, the mind, brain, heart, soul mystery, if you wish to think of it that way? Is that what's being placed before us when we go under general anesthetics or anesthesia? And it's obviously to me the, the latter. This is the mystery of the mind, brain, and they're unable to figure out the mystery of the mind, brain. And so they assign something else to anesthesiology. And they, they say now, it's all over the internet, that an uh, anesthesiologist induces death. And they will brag about how many times they have undergone general anesthetics and how many times, therefore, they have died. So they're equating the loss of their ability to recognize consciousness as death. And they're using it as evidence that we cease to exist. We are extinguished at physical death. It's, but to me, what they're really talking about is Genesis 2-7. And of course they can't understand that because they've never heard of Genesis 2-7 or Genesis 3-19. And so Genesis 3-2-7 is the question of how has God placed this, this 722, into living beings? 
How did God take the mental properties, which is the immaterial, and connect and combine it with the physical properties, which is the material? He took that which is immaterial, that which is made from dust, and he put them together. And he has made them dependent, but they're independent simultaneously. They're two substances that have no commonality in composition, yet they interact. How does that work? Explain 2-7 to me before you talk to me about consciousness and anesthetics. You solve that, you'll solve anesthesiology. How did he do it? How is it done? How is it even possible? This is called the impossibility of the mind-brain. It's been declared to be impossible. It's not possible, but it happens to be possible. By the one who does what? He says, I do what? All things with me are what? Possible. He does the impossible. The mind-brain is an impossibility displayed for us. Be aware that not one, not a single anesthesiologist knows how or why anesthetics accomplish their function. I talk to them. It's kind of my habit. As I'm going underneath, as I talk to the wonderful anesthesiologist that uh, had access uh, to me, I stole her pen, as you know, as a memory for me, because I wanted to know my memories, don't I? And I made fun of her as much as I could. I knew that she had no idea what she was doing, how it worked, and, and what the consequences may or may not be. It's a complete, total mystery. It's been done by rote. It's been done by uh, experimentation. But no one knows how it works. Not a single anesthesiologist knows. And again, I think it would be helpful for them to figure out what happened in Genesis 2-7 and Genesis 3-19. And what will happen based on the words of what the person who did both of those said would happen in John 11.25. Anesthetics are interference agents. They interfere. But how and why remains completely unknowable, undetermined. And there's plenty of speculative uh, premises, but there is no knowing. With the exception, again, of... Genesis 2-7. When you tell them Genesis 2-7, they'll say, well, you just have this magic uh, uh, God in the sky, and they call that the God of the gaps. You just say God did it, and you walk away. Well, no. I, I hope that I don't say that. I do say God did it. I want to know why he did it and how he did it. Which brings me to the point, yea, finally, a point, page five. The biological sciences within which anesthesiology is placed has never been able to define life. Never. They know they can't define it, but they act like they do. They don't define it. They describe it. They cannot answer the question, what is life? It has been unanswerable for all of the history of mankind that should make you suspicious. Why has this question never been answered? Biology, as I said, describes some of the characteristics of life. The science is reasonably competent with respect to describing things. It not so much with explaining, the, especially the why or the what or the how. What is life? If you walked into a biology class, I don't care what level it was, and asked what is life, they'd give you an answer that was absolutely unable to be an answer. And they know it. What is life? Unanswerable. How does gravity work? What is gravity? That's one question. They don't answer that one either. 
And they try to answer it. They have a membrane. They have a mattress. They have a bowling ball. They have all this stuff. Doesn't work. Again, how does gravity function? Those are the two most obvious that are never answered by science, only pretended to be answered, and they can only be answered by theologians, not by scientists. And science offers at best an impoverished concept. (sighs) Ultimately, life must be known from inside. The way you figure out life is you go inside. It is an internal exercise. It is not an external It's not without, it's within. Let me try to explain that. The fact that it is an internal exercise has paralyzed anesthesiology. At best, anesthesiology merely describes external effects, external actions, physical responses. Maybe they get into electrical chemical activities, but there is no possibility to know what has has occurred inside the mind. Because, you see, the, the mind can't be seen. There's evidences of the mind, but you can't see them. And this unseen aspect really bothers them. They don't like not being able to physically see or physically touch. That's a problem. That leads us to conclude, therefore, I'm going to make a jump right here. The mind is unseen, therefore, the life that resides in the uh, mind is also what? Unseen. The mind is unseen and life is unseen. That's the reason they can't answer the question, because what they're trying to describe can't be seen or touched. And that's going to explain John 4.24. John in 4.24 says, I'm a spirit. And you have to worship me in spirit and truth. You have to know who I am in order to worship me. And who is he? What does he mean by that sentence? He means that he is Christ himself. Manifest in the flesh. And you have to know that truth. And, you, and it's your spirit, your unseen, your mind that worships him. Colossians 1.15 through 17 is helpful here as well. The light of life, John 8.12, is the image of the invisible God, the unseen. That's what Christ is saying. Colossians says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible. God is invisible. He is unseen. Why is he unseen? Again, they don't like that. People resist this. Matthew 6, 6, but you, when you pray, and nobody does this, everybody prays in, in ways that are just, I, I think, incredibly offensive today in the church. It's just a bunch of junk. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, not really fake sorry. He says this, but you, because you know who I am, When you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. He's in the secret. He's unseen. He's invisible. And obviously, I'm proposing that the unseen or the hidden aspects of the triune Godhead has has extra facets to it, multiple facets. No surprise there. He's unseen for reasons. He's invisible for reasons. What are the reasons? And he tells you, you've got to know it. 
When you pray to me, have an understanding that I'm in secret. Don't pray like the Pharisees, which is the way the church prays all the time. They don't stop doing it. But not you. You're the wise. Go into your room. Shut the door. Duplicate the secrecy that I have in a small typology that you will produce by doing so. No one does it. One of the most common accusations I think you'll see hurled by men at God is about his invisibility. The complaint is that because he does not reveal himself as a man would dictate or demand, and I said that correctly, men like to tell God what he must do. He won't respond to that because it would be evil to do so and it would be destructive to you. But men attempt to dictate how God should reveal himself. And then when he does not operate as their organ grinder monkey, as they wish, they say that is evidence that he doesn't exist. And, or they say or that he has, uh, that he is an, uncaring. And sometimes they'll say it's because he has weakness. And you heard me a while back talk about this. The conclusion is that God is evil and impotent. And that, of course, is the beginnings of the evil, angry, murderous God. One thing about it is slightly true, not in the way they mean it, but it does have something about it. Jesus Christ withholds himself. That's why I handed out pictures a while back. Uh, I think it's important. I wish your kids had them. Because they depict Christ as how he actually looks in Revelation. How he looks now. He looks the same way in Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Matthew 17, Revelation 1. He withheld his appearance when he walked among us. He hid his identity. If you want to think of it as a secret identity, that's true. He's in secret. And he hid it. He hid his true self. And you really see the symbol of this. Uh, explain it. The Ark of the Covenant portrays Christ. Christ is all three of these arcs at the same time and individually. So I have the Ark of Noah, I have the Ark of Moses, I have the Ark of the Covenant or the Testimony, and Christ is portrayed in all of those individually and collectively. And when the Ark of the Testimony, the Covenant, was being carried by the priests of Israel, uh, when it was about to be taken out of the Holy of Holies, what they did is they took the veil down that, and they carry, they covered the Ark with it. So they lowered the Holy of Holies veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the, the other areas of the tabernacle of Moses. And they lowered it and placed it over the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was also covered by skins. And some people think they were badger skins. Others say they were dolphin or porpoise skins. And, uh, and there was also a cloth of blue and that, that shrouded the Ark and no one could see it. That is a picture of Christ being covered in humanity, walking through Israel, and no one knew it was him. And who he really was, the God of Genesis 3.14. I'm sorry, Exodus 3.14. And the symbolism, I hope they're obvious, there's many of them. But for today, just recognize that Christ wanted to be unseen. He wanted to be hidden. Ask why does God do this? The God who created all things is neither uncaring or powerless. He is the opposite. He is long-suffering and omnipotent. But he wants to be unseen. 
He's willing that none should perish as he defines perish. He remembers every living soul that he has ever created, Genesis 8.1. I get a lot of pushback on that. I say, how in the world does he remember all the rabbits and the mice? And I always ask the same question. Is he unable or is he unwilling? Both of those are fraught with, with blasphemy. So you need to be careful. That's what we call a trap. All souls return to him. He says that. All of the breath of the spirit of, of the livingness. Livingness, is that, is that a word? Livingness? Lividity? No, that's not it. Life, that's it. All of the souls of life, the breath of life, return to him. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, it's an important verse. He's omnipresent. He sees everything, all things, all at all time, all times. So therefore he knows all things. So why did he cover the ark? He obviously wants us to know that this unseen indivisibility is here. And I submit that it occurs that it's attached to, but it's not limited to, let me get rid of these things, to two things. This theme, if you will, of invisibility, this hiddenness, is about two subjects. One subject is existence And will, by appearing to be, we know he's omnipresent. He says so. But if I asked you, does anybody see God? We would all say what? We'd say, no, we don't, we don't see him. But he's omnipresent. Do you recognize the contradiction? It's impossible to be omnipresent and unseen. But he's omnipresent and we think he's unseen. And that has something to do with the fact that we have complete existence that can never be taken away from us. And existence has this connectivity to will. The other reason that he is unseen or appears to us as unseen is because of the definition of life. So those are the two elements. Number one, existence and will. And again, it's not limited to just this. But these are, I believe, are the two most important. He is, to repeat it, he is, has this unseen aspect that he has given us. This invisibility. This hiddenness. This unrevealing. And that is connected to the question of life. The innermost element of life as well as the uh, inherence, if you will, of existence and will. Existence and will are commingled. They're tightly bound. If you don't have freedom of will, you do not have existence. And the inverse is correct, obviously. God guards our sovereignty. That's what the two trees are about. The, our accountability, the judgment, the great white throne. They testify of our sovereignty. And this is one of the reasons he is unseen while simultaneously omnipresent. And, and again, it might seem to be a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. Yeah, I, I say this way too much. It's important that you know why it's good that living beings have will. If they don't have will, they're not living. They must have some element of will. 
And it's said all the time that, um, that will is an illusion. If you remove will, then you commit that error of Exodus 17, 1 through 7, asking, is God among us or not? And, and that's the same. If you say there is no freedom at all, that nothing has made with any free element to it, living beings are not really living beings. It's all an illusion. That's the premise of physics. There is only purposelessness and hopelessness. That's Einsteinian thinking. Will and time, all of these things are illusionary. But God says that isn't true. And if you accuse me of that in Exodus 17, 1 through 7, that none of us are actually living beings, nothing is a living being. Remember, Israel said, you have brought us out here to terminate us there. That's what they said to him. You're going to terminate us, our children, and our animals. None of us are living beings. You said we were living beings in Genesis, but we're really not. God calls that evil. He has no such thoughts in his mind, Jeremiah 32, 35. So there is the element of will that I believe is there in being unseen. He's unseen because why? If he's unseen, what do you think incorrectly? We'll get to that in a minute. We'll read what he thinks we think. Another component of that, in my opinion, is that his unseenness, his free will choice to be unseen is directly related to the definition of life, which is why no one can solve it in the biological science. Life is hidden. Life is covered within. It's concealed in the innermost of the body that is made from dust. That which is a living soul, that which makes a living soul, he who makes a living soul, is not tangible. He says so. I'm a spirit. The physical cannot animate without the soul. The, the living soul is what causes life, and the living soul can't be seen by design. At the cellular level, with the trillions of cells in your body, without the spirit, the cells would not function. They would not move. They would not animate. There would be no evidence of life. It's the soul that's doing that. Not the physical structure. The unseen is the life force, not the seen. You don't see life. You can't see life. It's a mental element, not a physical one. But as you know, Adam saw Christ. Adam saw and spoke to God. God walked in the garden with Adam, side by side. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the owner of the garden. Adam was the gardener. Know the difference. Mary Magdalene thought Christ was the gardener. Remember John 20:15. And then uh, along with that we have the parable of the landowner who goes away to have a direct relationship. Um, in other words, I'm sorry, I should have said that badly. The parable of the landowner who goes away. And the relationship that comes from that. Because it changes. That's Matthew 22, 33 through 41, Mark 12, Luke 20. We'll get to that in a minute. Both Mary Magdalene thinking that Christ was just the gardener at his resurrection. 
Why did she think he was a gardener? Again, Christ is the owner of the garden. Adam was the gardener. And this parable of the landowner or the vineyard owner, both of those return us to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam is the gardener. Genesis 2. That's the first time in Genesis 3 where the landowner comes to inspect the condition of the gardener. Isn't that correct? The gardener, Adam, is in trouble. He has failed as a gardener. Something is beeping at me. It's not my devices. I have no alarms. Back to where I'm at. Genesis 3, Mary Magdalene thinking he's a gardener in this parable of the landowner we are now back in Genesis 2 and 3. Again, that's the first time in Scripture where the owner of the garden, the landowner, he comes to inspect the condition of his tenant gardener, the tenant farmer, the guy that is harvesting the crops. Now, the guy harvesting the crops is supposed to do what? He's supposed to pay his lease fee out of the crops. There's an accountability aspect. So when you start looking at this, you're going to see why God does what he does. Jesus Christ is simultaneously the landowner and the beloved son here. Let's read Mark really fast, but know ahead of time that he is in two positions. He does that a lot. Uh, Mark 12, 33. Well, I'm going to start at, uh, at 1, I think. Why did I say 23 when I wrote that? Because I thought it was Matthew? Probably. So Mark 1. First, um, or I'm sorry, um, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. That's important right off the bat. He's speaking to the, par- uh, the, the uh, Pharisees in parables. This is the place where the Pharisees begin to be given to them. He's no longer giving them plain information. He's giving them, them p- these parables. So he's changed his method of speaking to them. Much like Joseph spoke to the tribes of Israel in, in, he, in uh, Egyptian, and they couldn't speak it. <coughs> they couldn't understand him. He spoke to them in Hebrew eventually. Excuse me. So I have a relationship there. But he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat. It actually says dug the wine vat and built a tower. So a man did this. What is Christ? He's the God-man. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. What's a far country now mean? He's not seen. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him, the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. So he sent them how many? These vine dressers, these tenant farmers, these gardeners. He sent them a, a whole bunch of prophets, and they beat some, they killed some. But they beat and killed everyone, in the sense that everybody either got beaten or killed. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, 
He sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do, he asks? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyards to others. Have you not even read the scriptures? Now, he's saying that to the Pharisees. Now, some components of the, of the parable are very clear. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees of Israel, knew immediately who in the parable represented them. They knew they're the killers. I see you. Thank you. They did not, however, have any comprehension as to who Jesus Christ is. They're just like Mary in the sense they think he's just a guy. She thought he was a gardener. She never thought that he was the landowner of the Garden of Eden. They never had any comprehension, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the political leaders of Israel, to, as to the totality of the person of Christ. And that is the, that is our time, isn't it? That prevails equally, if not more so, today. To repeat some more, Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener had him in the tenant-farmer position in this parable. And he is the second, or he is the last Adam. Adam was the first gardener. So gardener does place Adam and Christ alongside each other. That happened with Mary Magdalene's uh, identification of him. It, it identifies him as the second Adam. So that's there. But he isn't the gardener. So there is a Genesis 2-3 referral, and that's good, and we should know that. But as always the case, Christ fulfills two or more roles in his parables. And while he's telling the parable, he is the parable. That's the case here. He's telling something that he's actually doing, that is being done to him, being thought of him. And that, in my opinion, reflects the impossibility of mankind to grasp the nature of the triune Godhead. I will read a lot of commentaries that say, uh, the man is God the Father, and the beloved Son is Christ. Well, no. Christ is both. He's both because he is in the triune Godhead. You can make the case the Holy Spirit is both and the Son is, I'm sorry, and the Father is both. I, I wouldn't want to begin that because of the distinction of the three. It's, uh, we don't understand the triune Godhead. The Father, the Spirit, the Son are three persons. They are distinct. They are persons, but they're the same. They, they're the us of Genesis 1.26, Genesis 3.22. The one, Deuteronomy 6.4. So I have three distinct persons who are one. And it's impossible to know that. It can't be explained. We can't explain it. It's for us to believe him when he says it's true. But in this case, he is in both positions. I should go back to page four. Remember that what I said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Talking about Adam, the man has become like one of us. And I always ask the same question here. Which one of the us is he? Uh, and the, the verse goes on saying, he has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. So what is good from evil? How did Adam become like one of us? 
Which one of the us did the man, Adam, become like? Well, we know he became like Christ. That's Romans 5.15. And Romans 5.15, therefore, equals Genesis 3.22. So in your Bibles, write Romans 5.15 next to Genesis 3.22. They're a complement. How did Adam become like one of the us? Well, it tells you how he did. How did he become like one of the us? He became like one of the us by knowing good from evil. And so I'm going to ask this question. Is knowing good from evil the equivalent of knowing life from death? Is that what he means there? And I submit yes. That is the meaning of knowing good from evil in that verse, Genesis 3.22. Anyway, a man Christ, that's the hypostatic union, God-man, Jesus God, planted a garden. And he put a barrier around it. And he built a tower. And he put in a wine vat. Okay. How many gardens has he planted? I'll bet you that he put a barrier around it and he built a tower and he put in a wine vat when he built the Garden of Eden. So what's the meaning of a barrier? It's a fence, if you will. We knew at some point that there were entrances to it that reflect very much the tabernacle of Moses and the human body. If you don't have Clarence Larkin's equivalency of the, of the temple of Solomon in the human body and the reason there are gates, it would be very valuable for you to see it. Christ built a garden, planted a garden, protected it, put a tower, and put in a wine vat. And then he leased it to tenant farmers, and then what did he do? He went away, and he was unseen. He went far away. So what did they think? They thought he was gone. You look at the two evil servants parable. One evil servant said, he's not coming back. I can do whatever I want. He will never see me. I can't see him. He can't see me. That, of course, is blasphemy. So, again, that, that speaks to will and existence, doesn't it? Your, your will is revealed if you think God isn't watching you. If you think that your sins are in secret, you are a fool. They are not in secret. You think he is far away, he's also omnipresent and outside of time. He has great advantages over us. So I'm saying to you, why does God do this, this going far away? Because of the existence and free will component, but he's also demonstrating the source and the mystery, which is life. He's defining life. He says life is unseen because he is life and he's far away and unseen. So life, therefore, is unseen. And that returns us now to this parable of the, of the garden owner. The key element, in my opinion, in the parable is that the tenant farmers beat and kill all the sent representatives of the one who planted the garden. They kill everybody that he sends them to collect his portion. Is he owed the portion? I get that question a lot. Well, why does he have to have a portion? Well, he planted the garden, he built the tower, and he put in the wine vat. He owns it. You don't own anything. We own nothing. And it's important to know that. We're the, we're the tenant farmers. We're the gardeners. But what's important here is they get to an eventual position. 
Eventually, the landowner, the possessor of all things, sends the beloved son, which is himself. The us sends the son. The light of life, Genesis 1, 3, John 8, 12. He says, I am the one who causes life. I am the light of life, Genesis 8, or 1, 3, and John 8, 12. So he connects those together and applies it to himself. And the tenant farmers say, let us kill the light of life. That's what they plan. That's our plan. Let us kill the light of life. Then the inheritance will be ours. What inheritance? They will take over the garden and have the vineyard. But they're also saying, if we kill him, there's something he can't do. If we kill him, he can't send any more representatives. Isn't that correct? If we kill him, he's the last. This is the, this is the heir. If we kill the heir, then we are what? What do they say they are? We are what? We're free. There's no accountability. There is no judgment. No payment to God will be affected. Well, there's no possibility that he can judge us if we can kill him. I want you to think of the insanity of this. The attempt to kill the one who provides all unseen life. You have unseen life. I have unseen life. Uh, we think we're going to kill the one that gave us that unseen life. I'd hit myself harder, but that uh, might result in problems for me now. It's absolute dark madness, it's, it, and yet it sweeps across the world. It, the Bible says to us that at the end of the age, uh, of the, at the end of the tribulation, the entire world will gather up with the Antichrist to try to kill life. Life will be coming. And they will try to kill him. He's outside of time. He's omnipotent. And we're going we're gonna to surround him. That's our plan. It's darkness. Our, our country, I, I, said, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. That we, we are witnessing darkness in the church, in the schools, in the government. At a level I have never witnessed in my arbitrary 66 years. So the knowledge of who Jesus Christ really is, is gone, almost gone from our country. Certainly it's gone from Europe and China with the help of our tech, tech companies. Our, our Silicon Valley is going to help China uh, kill its Christians. That's what it's going to do. That's what they're doing. You know, the, we have the NBA can't figure out that China is an evil, fascist, communist killing machine. They can't figure that out because why? Because you can sell, you can sell basketball shoes in China. That's why uh, our country is de devolving and it is a pace that I've never experienced. So there's this willingness to eradicate, erase the one who makes the physical body from dust and implants the unseen beneath the, uh, beneath the surface. In other words, puts the unseen breath of life into the body. And he's the one who creates and plants the garden. So we have the guy that makes the physical body from dust, puts life in it, and also planted the entire garden, which is the entire earth. That's the one we want to kill. That's the owner of our soul, who freely gave us all life. And upon the loosening of the silver cord, Ecclesiastes 12, 6, the breath of the spirit of life is going back to him. And 
only back to him. He's the only one. And he is the one the world hates and loathes and will kill him if they could. But they can't. No one can kill him. He's got to give up his own life. He can take it up and lay it down whenever he wants, as many times as he wants. John 10:18. That's why he says that. You can't kill me. I have to give up my own life. And he goes away, far away. That's where he is now. But yet he remains because he's omnipresent. And how then did the heart and the brain become electrified? That was a lot of work to get to this. I have an electrical device. Mine not so good. How did it get electrified? It's all electrical devices. I have some credibility here. Here, if I have an electrical electrical device, I'm going to need I'm going to require circuitry and a power supply at some point. And I can map out, and the biological the electrophysiologies has basically mapped out the conductivity path of the heart. Kind of, sort of, they have. And much of the heart, if you've been here for a while, is unbelievably electrified. It's capable of spontaneous electrical generation. Your heart muscle, your myocardia. And there's only heart muscle in the heart. There's no heart myocardium anywhere else in the body. And so, in other words, there's power supplies all over the place in the heart. Billions of them. And the brain is similarly constructed. And they are this heart and brain constantly exchanging information. And the heart, as you know, I've said this before, it bears repeating, though. The heart forms and is beating before the brain forms. So it's logical to me as an electrical physiologist, okay, a fake one. It seems logical to me that the contractile circuitry of the heart is the power supply. That's the power supply. That's the battery. That's the generator. And I know that the afferents or afferent signals are nine to one in favor of the heart. In other words, more information goes from the heart to the brain than comes from the brain to the heart. So the brain does not control the heart. In fact, the heart controls the brain. Mostly. There's some elements that we'll have to get to that will lead to other conclusions. But that is, again... Something that is learned only recently. But the question goes back. How did the electrical cells in the heart become electrified, become electrical cells? Capable of spontaneously generating electricity. And that's just the beginning of the heart questions. How did the electrical cells form this complex circuitry then that includes a delay mechanism? I have this... The sinoatrial node and I have the atrial ventricular node. That's fascinating because the sinoatrial node, we believe, is where all the electrical circuitry originates. And it sends information, if you will, electricity over to the left atrium and into the right atrium and into the right ventricle and into the left ventricle. But there's a delay because it's necessary for this to fill up with blood in the proper order. Where did the delay come from? Why is the AV node, why does it have this delay in it? How did it get a delay in it? To put it in a different words, uh, the atrials contract first. That's an atrial, that's an atrial. They contract first. 
but there's this built-in delay, and then the ventricles contract. The ventricles contract from the bottom up. That's really handy, because I have a pulmonary valve, and I have an aortic valve. It's really handy I build up pressure from below. What if I built up pressure from above? Well, it just so happens I build up from below, so I build up pressure, and that opens that pulmonary valve. That allows me to get blood into the lungs and get the CO2 changed into oxygen, O2, at the capillary level, and then returned through the pulmonary veins into the left atrium. That's really handy. So now I can get blood through the aorta into the entire body, and we can breathe. We can remove CO2 and exchange it for oxygen. But because it builds up from the bottom, the pressure from that opens those valves. And once the pressure goes away, because the contractile element of the heart causes the heart to push all the blood into the right positions, then the valves close back up. That's really fantastic, this evolution. It's ridiculous to ascribe this to an evolutionary process. We haven't started. As I said, the SA node has spontaneous capabilities. It spontaneously depolarizes. I know you don't understand this yet, but I will beat you and beat you and beat you until you can talk just like me and go around and impress your neighbors. This is what's called spontaneous depolarization, which means that it changes from negative to positive, if you wish, positive to negative. But in this case, it's a negative outside surface on the myocardium, and then it inverts to a positive exterior surface. That causes a contractual event. Contraction. And it does it on its own. The brain does not provide that information. It does it all by itself. It has that capability. How did it get that capability? First, how did it get electrified? How did I get a circuit? How do I have the spontaneous capabilities? So in other words, the SA node has sovereignty. It's autonomous. No outside rate influence. The atrial ventricular node has this delay, this depolarization rate that's slower than the right atrial, left atrial. How did that happen? And we haven't even begun. Who did it? How did he do it? Why did he do it? What's it mean? That's where we're headed. What is the symbol of the heart? The heart symbolizes something. People have speculated, is it the tabernacle of Moses? Is it the heavenly uh, tabernacle? What's the relationship between this heart and that brain and something that is somewhere else? Because he gave us a symbol that's incredible. Now we have to figure out how it fits. It's not that hard. Just have to learn a few words that you'll never use again.